Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stayschool, joined as always by Paul Tenorio, and not as always, a very special guest on a very special night, our good buddy and athletic colleague, Felipe Cardenas. We are coming to you live from Cincinnati, Courtyard Marriott downtown. It's like three in the morning. The U.S. beat Mexico, dos a cero, two nil, that poetic scoreline in Ohio uh, earlier this evening, or I guess yesterday evening at this point, um, to move in a tie atop the octagonal standings with Mexico on 14 points. Christian Pulisic, he didn't start, but he sure made an impact. He came in off the bench in the 69th minute. Five minutes later, I believe, with his first touch, scored the opening goal for the U.S. Weston McKenney made it 2-0 11 minutes later. U.S. mature, composed, calm, confident um, for the most part. There were a couple card situations with McKenney and Miles Robinson, who saw a second yellow. Um, they'll both miss the Jamaica game on Tuesday due to suspension, but on the whole, a super positive night for the U.S. men's national team. We're going to break it all down. We're going to start big picture. We're going to get a little bit more granular, and then we'll talk a little bit about Mexico, who Felipe spends a lot of time covering and thinking about, um, and look ahead to next week's games as well. So let's start big picture. Um, Paul, I'll start with you, and then I'll move to Felipe. What, what's the big takeaway for you? I think for me, it's just the continued growth of this team and the fact that they look fit for these big games, for these moments. They're not afraid of the moments. They they kind of embraced this game just like they did in the finals this summer, I thought, against Mexico, and they didn't shy away from anything. They, they were confident in the way that they played on the ball, the way that they attacked. Um, their willingness to try to control the game was far superior than I expected it to be. And they, they, again, didn't shy away from any confrontations or attempts at intimidation. There weren't even that many of them, I think partly because they, they weren't going to be pushed around and that was kind of clear from the jump. Um, but considering how young this team is, considering the lack of experience of so many players in the starting lineup, so many players in this group, it did not feel like that at all. I mean, when you watch the way Yunus Musa was playing, there's no way you'd think that he's an 18-year-old in his first game against Mexico. No way. Tim Weah. I mean, Tim Weah has been fighting, is trying to fight his way into the starting lineup for the U.S. as, like, last month that was happening. And he was the best player for the U.S. tonight, or most impactful player for the U.S. So, you know, it, it, it really speaks to, I think, um, the potential when things all come together for the U.S., when when they play at their their kind of top levels of how good they can be. And, and we've seen kind of the ups and downs of youth and what young groups, you know, can the, the learning that occurs, kind of what I wrote about um, in my game story. But but this is the payoff when, when when you have these young players playing this well, this is what it can look like. Absolutely. And Felipe, I mean. I sort of was thinking, I was tossing around this idea ahead of ahead of the match or during the match, really, when I'm starting to write my own piece. But like, if the U.S. entered this game as like a team of like tantalizing potential, but a little bit uncertain, right, and a little bit you don't know what you're gonna get. Today, it felt like they sort of took a step to becoming a more consistent group and one that you can count on a little more reliably. Do you agree with that? I, I do in the sense that tonight you saw some of the best qualities of this U.S. team. You also saw the the youth and the inexperience in, in some parts of the field. 
there, I, I still feel like the left back position is one that, that needs to be solved. I don't think Anthony Robinson was great tonight. Uh, but to Paul's point is, and, and as well as yours, it's like, this is a U.S. team that can be exciting. They can, they can trouble good teams. They can trouble teams that tend to have a pretty clear idea of how they want to play. Uh, and, and they rise up. I mean, I, I thought it was, it's, it's so interesting that the narrative before the game was like what Memo Ochoa said, this, this thing about the mirror mirroring us and, and, and Greg Berhalder jumps on it and then the team creates a t-shirt about it. And then that's, the, it gives them the <laughs> this edge. Is, this is the man in the mirror game. This is how we're <laughs> going to remember totally this. It totally is. It totally is. And, uh, in the story that I filed, it's like something as, as, as petty as that became a rally cry for the u.s and it became something that the that mexico couldn't really uh match as far as the intensity level went now for for mexico they they had their chances in the first half they certainly did uh but really this is the story of of the united states coming through in a huge game a huge game against their rival at home like you mentioned in ohio dos acero once again uh and if you're a u.s fan you enjoy this victory yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to just provide a little bit more color and context on, on that story that you just mentioned about the man in the mirror in Memo Ochoa. So he came out with a quote to Today NA earlier this week in the build up to the game saying that basically when the U.S. looks in the mirror, they see Mexico and they want to copy us, they want to be us, that sort of thing. It was sort of a statement that, hey, yeah, they may have beaten us in two, two finals, but we're still the Giants of CONCACAF. They might have this potential, but they're not at our level, right? And the U.S. tonight, with this performance, kind of ripped that idea to shreds, in my opinion. Um, and I think that's a, a big step for this team. I don't think the U.S. really felt any differently before the game, but I still think it's interesting. And so Memo Ochoa said that. A group of U.S. soccer staffers put their heads together after. And we're like, wouldn't it be funny if we played Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson um, if we win the game on the PA afterwards during a victory lap? And so they eventually get approval day of the game, Friday morning. They get approval from their big bosses. And so that's a go if they win. And separately from this, with no knowledge that the two things are happening at the same time, <laughs> Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah and DeAndre Yedlin are like, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if we put man in the mirror on Christian's undershirt? And then, of course, he comes in off the bench and scores, right? So, like, think about all the things that had to happen for those two things to work in concert with, with each other. It's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, kind of a cool little story and a little bit of, I think, rivalry lore for the future. But the big takeaway for me is I didn't know how the U.S. was going to manage this game, right? Emotionally, really. Um, there was a lot of talk about kind of that balance beforehand of, okay, they need to come in with intensity. We all expected it to be a really high-tempo high, high tempo game. I expected it to be pretty open. It was not, for the most part. Um, and they came in and they managed the intensity, but they stayed cool and they stayed composed and, and they stayed within themselves and they played their game and they were in control for most of the night. First half was pretty even, but second half, U.S. was in control. And I thought it was impressive. Sam, you know what I was going to say about emotions that you, you weren't sure how the U.S. was going to respond emotionally. For, for, in my, in my opinion, having, being closer to Mexico, I wasn't sure mm -hmm. how they were going to handle the emotions of, of this game. I, in my head, before the game was giving the edge to the U.S., I'm like, they have their own crowd. They're going to have the music. They're going to have the light show, everything, the anthem. Like, you're going to be ready. If, if you were amped, 
before in warmups, they were going to be even more amped when, when kickoff started. And in the end, to me, Mexico just didn't manage the emotional side of this game well at all. Uh, to your point, the game wasn't wide open, but Mexico had these opportunities where they created that space. They let Chucky run like crazy. He had those chances. But then they started to lose their composure. Uh, and when they lost the game, the control of the game, the little control that they had in the first half, because it was pretty even, uh, they began to lose their heads. They were some of some guys were walking full six goal. Chaka Rodriguez just stopped playing. He and lost the, his head big time. And, and he and you know at this level, like that is inexcusable. You know that is unacceptable, and that's something that you know. In talking to some Mexico reporters when I came back from the press conferences, what was coming out of their mouths was like, you know, Tata's got to fix this, and they weren't talking about tactics. Uh, they were a little concerned that he took too long to make his changes, but this was more like, what is going on with this team? Like, why can't they perform at a high level in a big match? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, the U.S. has been a second-half team for a long time, and Paul, you jump in here, but we saw that again tonight. I I, I want to point out that I feel like the the game for the U.S., like from the start, from like the pregame, lived up to the hype of what a USA-Mexico game should be from a U.S. perspective. Like, the anthem was fantastic. The crowd was singing it. And it wasn't like one of those annoying crowds singing it where it sounds terrible. Like, they were no, complimenting and, the person who was singing. And it, it, it added it was to a the good atmosphere. Pair. It was like a perfect... It was a good pair. It was like a harmony that was happening between the singer and the crowd. And it, it gave people goosebumps. Like, you could see it impacting the players. And, you know, then the U.S. came out and from the jump, they were competent they were playing and yes mexico had chances in the first half too but people were stepping up and like i'll say like i i think credit to greg berhalter he got three the three question marks of the lineup in my opinion all three proved to be right in this game like zach Steffen was tremendous in multiple ways the the big save in the first half on on lozano was was probably the most was it lozano yeah it was lozano that was the most important moment but he he was um, an outlet for them to play through Mexico's press. Walker Zimmerman, I thought, had another really Massive. strong outing. Yeah, he was very a- good. And then really Tim Weah, good. who was the man of the match, who was the question mark. I thought I thought for sure Greg Berhalter was going to pick Ariola, and he proved me wrong. I, I kind of thought like one of his bad habits was to ride his guys until they proved him wrong. And I don't I didn't think Paul or Ariola had proved him wrong in the same way that Sebastian Legette had. But, you know, he saw enough in Weah and started him, and Weah paid him back for that. So, like, in, in the sense of, like, did you get the big decisions right in the lineup? Like, yes, they did. Was the atmosphere on point from the start? Yes, it was. Did the team recognize the moment? Even though they were better in the second half than the first, I never felt like they were flat. Like, they, they, they brought it from the opening whistle, and they were, they were able to exchange those punches. So, like, from a U.S. perspective, I thought from like before the whistle all the way through the final whistle, they did everything you'd hope they'd do in a game this big. Everything went right for the U.S. tonight. Almost everything. Not quite. Well, until the very end and some yellow cards, but other than that. Yeah. No, it's 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 hard to argue with anything you just said. I pretty much agree with all of it. Um, it was a massive performance. I thought it was the most comprehensive performance they've had in qualifying. Um, you know, we, we talked about the two finals. We mentioned that I mentioned them earlier. The U S was outplayed in both those games. They probably shouldn't have won either of them. You know, they got set piece goals. 
Um, you know, it was weird back and forth game. I think Pulisic said it in his press conference after the match, you know, comparing it to Nations League. He's like, yeah, you know, well, I think a coach is probably a little bit more happy with a controlled, composed 2-0 game than a wild, open, back and forth 3-2-1, right? And, like, I think that to me is sort of the big takeaway. It's like Mexico probably should have won those first two finals. Tonight, they didn't have any business winning this game. Like, they, they could have scored. I shouldn't say any business because they could have easily taken the league. Probably should have taken the league in the first half. Yeah, yeah. But, but after about the 25th minute or so, the U.S. Was, was in pretty solid control in my opinion. My only pushback was I, I don't agree with the fact that Mexico should have won both games this summer. Like, I think should, it should had, have been strong, had, had but the second I, I think goal outplayed in outplayed. Nations League, then sure, yes, it could have gone that way really strongly for Mexico. But I thought the Nations League final was two teams punching each other in the mouth over and over again. Like, I felt like it turned into like a slobber knocker. And like, I didn't think either team necessarily was like <laughs> a, a Donnie Brook. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like a, I didn't think it was like a substantial performance of Mexico right, dominating enough, the U.S. countering. Enough, I'll push like, back on that though. I'll push back. I thought I, Mexico I, was better in they both were, games. They, I think when we use, when we say better, that's where we get subjective. I think. In comparison, especially with this game, in those previous matches, Mexico had a lot more control of like the game. Like they were playing their game, they were possessing the ball, they were moving it around, they were switching fields, they were getting behind, but they weren't necessarily being like ruthless and creating tons of chances or more chances than the United States in those previous games. But they were they were better. They were better in those games than they were tonight. Like I think we should talk about the individual performances. I'm looking at some of the the ratings. And I don't even have to look at the ratings to know that like a guy like Raul Jimenez was not good tonight. He was not good enough. Uh, a guy like Tecatito Corona, he had some interesting moments. I thought he was actually better in the first half defensively uh, than he was in the second half, but he misses a clear-cut chance to take the lead. And so the U.S.'s bigger players or the players that needed to step up, I think you guys already said it, like they definitely did. Mexico's big players did not. And I think that was one of the biggest differences tonight. I agree with that, Felipe. And we will take a closer look at individual players right after this break. Stay with us. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late. And there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. 
Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Talking talking about the man in the mirror game. US 2, Mexico 0, World Cup qualifier in Cincinnati. We teased it before the break. We're going to talk a little bit about individual matchups, individual performances here in this segment. And what better place to start than the midfield, the engine, the engine room, as they say, to use the old cliche. Um, you know, this was an interesting matchup because they, they set up in a 4-3-3, both teams. Pretty identical dual number dual number eights with the holder behind it. U.S. of course starts Tyler Adams as the six. Weston McKenney and Eunice Musa as the number eights. Mexico starts Edson Alvarez as their six. Ache Ache, Hector Herrera, and why am I blanking? Help me out, somebody. Romo, Luis Romo, the, not Tony. Luis Romo, not Tony. Um, Luis Romo as their as their other number eight. Um, and Felipe, I mean, you just said it, so I'll, I'll just throw it to you. You think that the the U.S. got the better of the Mexico trio? I do, and not in like, whoa, what a dominant performance. They shut down Mexico, and they were just so great. No, because Tyler Adams, even though if you look at his if – you, if you go to FootMob or any of the, the sites that rank and rate players, the one I'm looking at, he ended up with an 8.5. That's like a really high rating. Really? I think that's kind of deceptive, right? Like the game that we saw – uh, Tyler Adams struggled in possession. I thought he was good positionally. He was sort of just like, I think at one point he was like, you know what? Maybe I'm not sharp tonight, but I'm just going to be a holding midfielder. And he held and he held and he held and he just like sat there and he was well positioned. And it allowed a guy like, uh, Yunus Musa to do what he does to get forward, to turn on guys with, without any sort of fear of leaving a big gaping hole in the middle. So I think they were a little bit more, uh, just, in sync, the chemistry was good between at least Adams and Musa. I did see a lot of like the typical Weston McKinney, like out of position, unsure of whether to take two touches or one touch or turn on a guy. Uh, he just wasn't sharp. He ends up scoring the goal, but he wasn't sharp. For Mexico, just quickly, 
Luis Romo gets was the big decision, one of the big decisions for Tata Martino because you're always going to start Edson Alvarez and Ache Ache, Hector Herrera. Uh, do you go with veteran Andres Acuardado? It was the big Mexico was like, don't play him in a game that's going to be so pacey. It didn't work out against uh, Canada, and so you go with Luis Romo, and he was not good. He he was just unsure of where to be. I felt most of the time, and then he was he was over- a passenger in this one. Yeah, and he was like over committee. I was watching him, and he was breathing heavy. It wasn't like he was like not playing. In fact, he was almost too too physical, too active. He was over committing, over uh, just like overstepping his lines. Uh, and he just wasn't adding anything. At one point, when I looked at halftime as duels, he had one. He had one duel, one basically, just one. So it, that that did not work. That decision from Martino was not the right one. And in the end, yeah, the edge goes to the U.S. because they those players were just better in key moments, especially Musa. I thought he was really good. Yeah, Musa was the best midfielder for the U.S. I, I thought the midfield grew into the game for the U.S. Like in the first half, Tyler Adams was was sloppy. In a couple moments, he had some passes bad that, that that he gave away in really bad spots. And like the thought wasn't bad with some of the ideas of where he wanted to go with the ball, but the execution was really poor. And and then Weston, like you said, I agree. Like his passing was really poor on the night overall. And you know that's kind of what we have seen at times with Weston is that that's, that's clearly not his strength. Um, typically he, he covers a lot of ground, he gets stuck in on tackles, he wins a lot of duels, and he's very good at kind of starting moments in transition, arriving late in the box, and being dangerous. And, I, you know, we talked about this yesterday. Um, I don't even remember where we talked about it, but that I felt like Weston McKinney was a guy who was going to have to step up and, and be a difference maker and, and be in around the box and try to score a goal. And he did that. And, like, that's, like, the crazy thing about Weston is, like, he is like this player of extremes. You know, he can have these like extremely low moments and then he can have these extremely high moments. And and oftentimes in a game, you get both. Um, but overall, I thought that group gave, especially in the second half when Tyler was uh, had a stronger performance overall, um, I thought they, they, they gave you what you needed against Mexico to win the game, especially Musa, who again was such a critical release valve of pressure. Like, he's the type of player that everyone is okay. You can play him the ball no matter what. Like, at one point, Zach Steffen played him the ball, and Sam almost fell out of his chair. And Sam was like, there's, like, one player on the field for the U.S. that you can play that ball to. <laughs> like, it was Eunice Musa. And- it was like he rolled him the ball into a double team. And Musa had to get the ball and go forward. And he did a step over. I don't even think he touched the ball. No, he, he did a step over. over. And, and and he like left the dudes in the dust. And I turned to you at a different point in the game, Paul, and I was like, this dude does not lose the ball. Like he just simply does not lose the ball. He doesn't always get it off his foot, probably as fast as he should or could, but but he is eighteen and he will hopefully learn that with time. But like his first touch is fantastic. And you can't take it from him. Like you cannot take the ball from him. And we were we were playing a little game last night or the night before the game, Thursday night. And and we were, okay, who's the best U.S. player now? And who's the one you want in four years? And the one, the four-year one, I said Musa. Because, like, this dude's just different than all these other guys on the U.S. team. It's like a different level of class. I don't know if he'll put it together all the way. I think he will. I agree. But, but, but you saw it tonight. 18 years old. Like, he wasn't even born, I think. Paul, you pointed this out last night. 
He wasn't even born when the USA beat Mexico in the World Cup in 2002. And and he put in a really, really top performance. There's one thing I want to say about you, about, you, uh, about Musa. The one thing that he does really well, like I agree, there are times where he kept the ball a little too much. He held on to it a little too much. And like the, he got cornered in the middle of the field, but he wouldn't commit the bad turnover. He made, he had enough like physical strength and momentum to still stay in front of the defender that was trying to just dink the ball away from him and create like a counterattack. But the one move that he was doing that I was like, man, like that, that's money is he lets the ball roll past him. Like he, his, it's, it's not even like a first touch. He has a great first touch, but there are times where he just, he lets the ball roll and then he just takes off. And it's like as a defender, you think you have the your, your position is is perfect. You see this guy is not you know he's not taking the touch. So you're like, okay, I'm there, I can tackle, and he just glides by that first marker, and that's what that's where he breaks the line. And so uh, I, I was wondering why hasn't Burhalter committed more like firmly to Musa in like other games? Like he didn't call him for a while, and then he did, and then he didn't. Uh, and, and perhaps it's his age. Perhaps he sees things in training that concern him. Who knows? But tonight he did the job. I, I was going to tweet this and I didn't because I was like, oh, this is going to be just like a total like, you know, I don't know. It's not worth tweeting. But I'll say it here. I was like, finally, I mean, finally, like, is he the Nagby replacement? Like, it feels like that's the role for him. I don't, are we comparing him to, to, to Darlington? Not yet because – I think he's more physical than Darlington. P- potentially. And Darlington has a lower center of gravity, which is like this is that is what makes it impossible for you to take the ball off of him. But there were, he was doing things tonight that I was like, you know, that's what U.S. men's national team fans have been craving. Like the player that can do that, the player that can be in the center of the field and break a line, get by the first guy. Edson Alvarez looked slow and he's not the fastest guy. But he looked like he was struggling every single time he had to chase Musa. So just tons of tons of potential. I mean, that was such an Atlanta United reporter comment. It was a good <laughs> shout though. But but he is the That's same as Darlington in the sense of being that safety belt, right? Like you play Darlington the ball and you know you're, he's not going to lose it. You, it doesn't matter what what's going on around him. The difference with Musa is that he adds more going forward in the final third, in my opinion. You know, Darlington can be effective in the final third, but he almost doesn't like to be. <laughs> like, that's been the big beef with Darlington. Um, whereas <laughs> the Musa, darlington Nagby heat map. Right. But Musa like, doesn't have those that. chances. Musa, I, I said it before, was that on tw- spaces where, like, I feel like he tends to get to the box and, and that's where he's like, okay, now what do I do? He did all this work in the middle to progress the ball, and then he gets there. He's like, oh, wait, now what? And he had those two chances where he fluffed one, and then he overcompensated on the next one to not send it high. And he just like slammed it onto the ground. So like finishing, we're not asking him to finish, but I think that's where he still has work to do. And and that's to your point about Burhalter and his role. And, and I was saying this on our walk back from the stadium. Like I, I struggle to remember sometimes to remind myself like there, this is a long game. And, and like not even just like what Sam's talking about of like what Moose is going to look like in four years when he's all of 22 years old. But, you know, it's it's stacking these camps on each other to build for the World Cup. And I think, like, I don't know what happened this summer. I was shocked that Musa did not play in Nations League. It was so weird. I don't know if it was like a 
an issue about being cap tied or if there was, you know, if it was just whatever, like he wasn't fit or he wasn't, you know, Greg, Greg said something a couple camps ago that alluded to the fact that maybe he wasn't all the way fit and, and ready to, to step into those games, but he had him in camp anyways. And Musa talked about being on the sideline for the Mexico final and getting a feel for that energy. And, and that probably played into this performance and I think we certainly see that like there are some players who, you know, the plan, I think the long-term plan is to, to have them in these starting roles by the time you get to guitar and it, and how fast that happens or how it occurs. Like there probably, there wasn't a plan for Pepe. It just happened. And now it's like, okay, how do you manage Pepe to get him to be good enough to be the starter in Qatar? You know, Musa, I think there's been a plan. Wea, I think I'm starting to believe that there's been a kind of a plan and a hope that Wea would emerge to be an option on the wing. Gio Reyna, I think, is another player that there's a, a they're still trying to figure out. Like he's a starter for us. Where is he a starter? Like how can we maximize what Gio Reyna is for the U.S. men's national team? Brendan and like it's been complicated by the fact that a player like Brendan Aronson has forced his way into the picture. Like, all of this stuff is happening simultaneously. He wasn't great tonight, though. Aronson he wasn't was great tonight, yeah. No, he wasn't. But that's, like, the luxury of the U.S. now, right? Is, like, Aronson's not great. Wea's playing fantastic. And Christian Pulisic comes in for Aronson. If Aronson had been playing great and Wea was struggling, Christian Pulisic comes in for Wea. But, like, you you have these options now that didn't exist. and And I think, like... What's interesting is going to be watching how this plays out over the next couple windows against Jamaica and then the next windows after that. And then going into next year, like in after the windows, assuming the U.S. qualifies, like where do these pieces start to emerge? Like how does this development continue? Because again, like this is what I wrote about. These players are so young. We're going to have these ups and downs of development that are natural for any player. And so, like, how consistent is Tim Weah going to be or Eunice Musa or Brendan Aronson or Ricardo Pepe? And what are they going to look like in a year's time? Where's Pepe going to be playing? Is he going to be playing? You know, and, and like I brought up a player earlier, George Bellow. Like, you're throwing him into these moments. He's clearly not ready. But are you thinking, well, maybe he'll be ready by November of 2022 and we need to give him these experiences now because we don't really have the luxury of time? I don't know. I mean, I I said after the game in Panama, I don't think we should see George Bellow for a while. But like, I just it's just really an interesting dynamic because the entire pool is so young that I just I'm interested to see how it plays out. And then beyond you eliminate the youth for a second, Aaron Long's coming back from injury this coming year. Jordan Morris is back on the field. Like there are some other interesting options that are going to be reemerging for this group. I, I don't know. It's just it's just kind of like the thing I keep trying to remind myself of. Like because things are so up and down with development of players as young as Musa, like what are these players going to look like in a year's time? Potentially really good. Sam, do you just let me jump in and please like you, you guys cover this team so much closer, but we. Paul, you talk about consistency. How do you build consistency, especially with these young players? Like specifically Musa and Wea, if they don't get enough time. So like, what is the plan? I'm, I'm actually very curious on like how Burhalter is managing this because, uh, yeah, I think the long game is, is an interesting one, but 
you're only a year away from, from the World Cup. So eventually these guys have to start believing like, I'm the starting number eight. I am the starting winger. Instead, they're, you're going to have guys playing like, I know I'm going to get taken out. And so I wonder if Weya has done enough, if tonight is enough for him to claim that spot. Probably not, because what, what happens when Reyna is healthy again? Well, I think that's good, though. It's competition, right? Yeah, and they know sure. it's a competition. And they also know that guys get hurt, and not everyone's available all the time, right? And in fact, most people... Not everyone is available, like, ever. Like, there's always an injury, right? So so you always need to be ready to be called upon. I want to go back to something Paul said about stacking and long-term and all of that stuff. That's all well and good, but there's a delicate balance there, right? And that these games really matter. And you can't afford to mess around, really, right? Yes and, and, and no, like, but, like, you don't have an, a choice. That's the crazy no, no, thing no, about it, this team. That's and- 100%, 100% right. And, like, so it's, like, a good, like, I don't know. It's, like... There's there's pros and cons to it, and sometimes it's going to bite you, and sometimes it's going to look good. And tonight it looked it looked good, and, and we're feeling good, and everything's great. Um, but Felipe, to your point about a plan, like it's just kind of like I don't even know if there is like really a plan. It's just kind of like this is something they have to do. They don't really have another choice, you know. Like this is just like what it is. What What's interesting too is the fact that COVID happened. You lose a year of playing together as a group, and. What's made it even worse in a way is by condensing the qualifying, you created these triple game windows. Like if every window was like this one where you're playing two games with four days of rest, like Tim Way is going to start again in Jamaica. You can carry over the confidence from performance to performance. In these triple game windows, there's rotation that was happening simply because you're playing three games in seven days. Like the rotation's required. And I mean, I again, I don't believe that the rotation that happened between Jamaica and Panama last month was the correct level of rotation. I think the, you know, my theory that I said on this show was certain players have to be on the field. If you're going to rotate so much, you still need some certain core guys on the field. But, you know, that has, that's never, this has never happened before. And and it it's complicated what's already a complicated process because this group is so young. And so, you know, I don't know, but I, I I guess what I'm trying to say is like you're going to need these guys to be able to come off the bench sometimes after having a good start or and, and for them to understand that it's not necessarily an indictment that you're not my guy, but that it's like this is the way things have to go in order to get the whole group ready or in order for us to try to get the most that we can out of this window. And I would point out that I think, you know, I, I kind of stupidly overlooked it in my prediction of putting Ariola into the lineup like Timway got rewarded. He got rewarded with the start for playing well against Costa Rica and and having responded from a not great performance against Panama to have a really good, strong growth performance against Costa Rica and then to stand on the shoulders of that performance. This is what I wrote about in this game. It's like when you see those growth moments, it's it's like your responsibility to try to, to your point, Felipe, grow that confidence more, reward it, say you're going to start, right? You de- you deserve this opportunity and try to build that belief in the player himself. I think it's fascinating because we, we me, me being, I say we, but I'm, I include myself, that we, we call Burhalter a tinkerer. He's tinkering too much. He's experimenting a lot. He's doing it in big games. He's doing it in one half, then course correcting in the next. But in this sort of situation, perhaps big picture is the best way to look at it. 
you know, I think the one thing that, that I've said recently, I said, I told this to, to Taylor Rockwell and Sam last night after several alcoholic beverages, but what I was saying <laughs> is that like, Felipe, the U.S. the U.S. is an outlier internationally. It's it's and that's why we're we're having this conversation. We're trying to figure out what they're doing and what the big picture is because they're one of the only teams or the very few teams in international soccer that are this young. And you said it, Paul, coming back from the game that World Cups and big tournaments are are young leg tournaments. You want young legs, you want healthy lungs and and, and players that can do it. But it's still rare for a, a, a nation, a national team, to be so young and to be relying on teenagers in multiple positions. It's it, it, to some, to the traditionalists, it's international soccer is still a game for the experienced player, and the U.S. is sort of like tilting that in another way. But it is interesting. Tata Martino, quickly, I'll say this: the way he described the U.S. today post game, and he, this is what he said: he said they're they're a dynamic team that runs a lot. And I think in, in English that sounds like so elemental, but I think the way he was saying it was like it, that, that is difficult to match up with. You have, you have to be at that level. And that's interesting because the U S strength, the U S has been like that before in other decades, but you add the dynamic part I felt was from Tata was like, well, that's interesting, but also you're going to, if you're going to play the U S you better be ready to compete. And that matches up with something that Greg Berhalter told me in an interview uh, for the story I wrote in, in the lead up to the match when he when I asked him about 2019 and what he learned from those games against Mexico. And he felt like the 2019 Gold Cup final, that one of the things that happened in that game was that they lost. He said the way he phrased it was the U.S. lost their power. Like they weren't hmm. able to maintain that high tempo and energy level that Mexico likes to play at for the entirety of the game. And as they lost that ability to match that energy level, as they lost that power, Mexico took over the game more and more. And he, and, and this team That's what is, Tata said today about Mexico. And this, and exactly. This team is young. They, and I, I asked a question um, later trying to set up again off of that, that answer Burrell tried given me about this idea of like how he used subs in this summer because he was very aggressively using subs against Mexico. And I thought maybe that had been like a lesson from 2019, trying to get fresh legs onto the field at certain moments to maintain that power. And really, this team is so young that he didn't really need that in this game. And, and really, the, the first sub he made was his best player coming onto the field. And like that, think about that. Like, you know, when you're, when you're, when you've been, if you're chalking, you're, you're, you're dealing with Brendan Aronson, who does nothing but run and press no matter what, no matter where or what, you know, what's going on. Anyways, my point being that like there's no fear of losing power with this U.S. team. Like they're they're young; they can run forever. Yeah, Butterhalter said that after the match. We wanted to break the rhythm with our pressing and eventually wear them down. Right. The second half is where we started to pull away. The second half is when we, you know, the effect that we have on opponents when we can press them and we can be that aggressive around the ball and with the ball, turning them around, making them face their own goal becomes really challenging. Right, and that's what we saw. They wore them down. It's a good second half team, team they, of runners. They are. They're like a cross country team right now. I'm just. They're not. But to, to, to Paul, cross country teams sprinted. If, if they sprinted and 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 were had good first touch. But to Paul's point, which this is what I was. I, I I ran into Bobby Warshaw coming back from the press room, the press conference room, 
And I was thinking about what I was going to write. And I knew I was going to write about the, the mentality of the Mexican national team. But these players, these veteran battle tested European, uh, you know, base players, like why did they flop in the second half? Why did they just to, basically what Paul just described the U.S. doing in the 2019 Gold Cup, Mexico did tonight. Uh, and, and I asked Bobby, like, you're, you're a former player. Why do players do that? Like, why do you, why, do the, why does the intensity level go down? And I knew that he wouldn't have a, an answer because anyone that's played or that's talked to professional players, you see them struggle with this question. They don't know. And something that Bobby Warshaw said was like, it's weird. It's like this feeling. It's like visceral. Like, you just know it's coming. Uh, and, and so I think the half ended and the half ended well for the U.S. They were like sort of back in control in, in, the, in the end of that first half. And the two misses for Mexico, I think, really deflated that side because it, even though nil-nil was good, I think part of their plan was like, I think we could take the lead in this first half and manage the second. And that didn't happen, and the game just fell out of their control. It's kind of a – to me, it's a simple answer, which is like to your guys' point, like Mexico controlling the games more this summer and the U.S. having – you know, kind of – keeping themselves alive with by scoring these goals to up the energy for long enough to stay in the game. Like Mexico controlled the game in 2019. And when you don't have the ball as much as you want and you're chasing a little bit more than you're used to and you're being challenged more than you would like, it has a cumulative effect mentally as well. And I think in this game, the U.S. was controlling the game. And that's very that's not very typical in this rivalry game. And I think that probably had an impact on the mentality of the emotional levels of the desire levels of Mexico. It's hard sometimes to bounce back from that. And there is this moment in the game where that can swing. And I started thinking about it and somebody asked a question of Berhalter about it. And he said he was thinking of it too, where that starts to change when you create chance after chance after chance and the ball doesn't go in you start to build belief in the other team like oh we're going to we're going to steal one here we're going to get a goal like they can't finish and like we just need one goal to win this game and like the US was like very close to reaching that breaking point and and that's when Christian came in and then he scored the goal but that to me is like kind of what the difference was for Mexico i just felt like they 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 didn't have control ever in the second half and it it, it i think it sapped them of energy i would agree with that to that point, even in the first, when the U.S., when it was a little more even, it was 55 to 45% possession for the Americans, um, which, like Paul said, it's not really something that's, that's, that's that usual in this matchup. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll a few more individual performances that we'll highlight, and then we'll look a little bit ahead to Tuesday's matches when the U.S. is playing at Jamaica. And, I mean, honestly, one of the most intriguing matches of the entire qualifying cycle for me, Mexico playing at Canada. Spend a little time on that one too. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. Final segment from Cincinnati. The man in the mirror game. I'm going to keep saying it. Man in the mirror. Uh, <laughs> US beat Mexico 2 nothing. Just running down a few more individual performance here is here for the US. We mentioned him briefly already, but Walker Zimmerman. I thought he was really good, again, uh, for the national team after a big October window for him. Um, you know, there were a couple moments in the first half when the U.S. center backs got a little pulled in the midfield by Raul Jimenez, and the rest of the team got a little caught up the field, and Mexico was able to turn it, or they were able to get a bounce or whatever, and they could play Lozano in behind on a diagonal. Um, and, and that was where some trouble was for the U.S., but apart from that, not really a ton of chances from minute 25-30 on, for Mexico, I thought Zimmerman and Robinson did a good job in the air. I thought Zimmerman hit some good balls, um, particularly in the first half. He broke lines a few times really nicely. So I thought an impressive performance from him. Miles Robinson, not quite as good. Obviously got the red card. I thought that second yellow was suspect. I didn't really think he fouled him at all. Uh, but there's no VAR in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, so he will be suspended for the match at Jamaica, which brings up an, a very interesting lineup choice for Greg Berhalter. Um, maybe he wishes he had John Brooks now, who knows? Uh, <laughs> and, and then, yeah, the fullbacks, I thought DeAndre Edlin was pretty solid. Uh, Anthony Robinson, not his best game. And Ricardo Pepe, also not his best game up top. Paul, you have anything you want to add on any of those five guys? No, I would agree. Like I said before, I thought Walker Zimmerman again, put in a really strong performance. Um, Yedlin, probably the best game I've seen Yedlin play. I'd say at right back for the U.S. Been very good for the U.S. recently. I don't know if it's just like club form coming over, if there's just a level of confidence. I think Yedlin's been playing better for the U.S. than I've ever seen. Um, so, you know, props there. Um, 
and and that that's like a good example of of what you want from a player like Yedlin because Serginho Dest is your starter at right back in an ideal world. But when Dest is unavailable or if you have to rotate to trust a guy like Yedlin who's got more caps than anybody on this roster right now, today, tonight was his 70th cap, you need those guys to step up in these big games. And he did. Um, I agree. Pepe was kind of, I don't want to say invisible, but he wasn't, you know, the, the, he never really found the game in, in the moments that fit him best. Um, and he and when the ball did find his way to him in a dangerous spot, he wasn't able to cash in, which is what he does so well. Um, but luckily for him, you know, Christian Pulisic and, and Wes McKinney made a count when they had their chances. So, um, yeah, for me, I, I thought we've seen better from Pepe for sure. But, um, you know, I, I thought overall, if my takeaway was like, on the back line, those guys, those two guys that you mentioned, Walker and, and DeAndre, I thought were were players that that gave you exactly what you needed from from them in this game. I'll jump on 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 the U.S. real fast. First of all, with Pepe, and I'll ask both of you this because I agree that he there were some chances that he clearly got uh, that he didn't finish. There was a near post run, I believe, in the first half that uh, he just couldn't get to or. Uh, from my angle, I wasn't sure if he if he just didn't feel comfortable swinging or he didn't get to it. But whatever the case, it, it looked like a good chance. In the second half, he had another one that he just kind of skied overwards over the bar. But my question to you guys is that I also feel like he was being fed some interesting balls a lot. Like they were yeah. guys were chipping balls into him. He was getting tough service. Yeah, he it was, was hard getting, to deal. They with. were chipping balls in. And the the and Mexico Mexican backline, they were very very tight. They were very tight. They were like not gonna let Pepe turn or hold up play and dink guys through. Like that clearly was something that they pinpointed. Uh, and, and I don't think Ricardo struggled there, but that's uh, those are difficult balls to bring down. Um, and it, it just made like it stalled the attack at times. It, it sort of set. Um, the U.S. in a difficult spot because a lot of times when he when that ball would come in and it would just sort of carry him around, uh, Hector Herrera was right there and he would start a counter. So like, I think you need to play defeat a little bit more. I don't know, I can't remember exactly why that was happening if they're trying to bypass a line there, but those are tough balls to handle. They they weren't really playing through the middle at all in the first half. Mexico did a good job of 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 blocking that off. And and it opened. I, I don't know. I would love for Berhalter to, to to tell us this someday. But they clearly it seemed like they were targeting very clearly Jesus Gajardo, the Mexico's left back, through Tim Weah. Uh, there there was an obvious uh, tendency for the U.S. to to go that way. Now there were times where Anthony Robinson was getting getting forward as well. Uh, but you know, I wrote a piece about the wing backs and the fullbacks that match up. And and I don't think Anthony Robinson did enough to be like he won all his battles. Like he he locked down that channel. Like Tata Martino in the first half, when from the press box, he was adamantly telling his players to dump balls in behind Anthony Robinson in the corner, dumping in the corner. He was he was motioning because there was just a huge Central Park acres of space that even if it's not like you're going to get into that space and just break a dude's ankles and score and like cross it. But like, you're going to, you're going to draw a foul. You're going to possess in their, in their half. You're going to 
uh, do whatever it takes to just keep the ball in their half. And Mexico wasn't recognizing that enough. And so uh, quickly, I agree with Yedlin. I thought he was strong. Uh, I don't know if because of Yedlin, it caused Lozano and Corona to switch sides in the 13th minute, or if that was something that they wanted to do regardless. I think it was going to happen anyway, but that was interesting. And it, it did give a little bit more fluidity to the to the attack. But Yedlin always seemed to be sort of like in good position. Yeah, I would agree with I would agree with that, Felipe. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about some Mexico guys too. So lay it on us. What do you got for us? There? Yeah, well, quickly, uh, you know, the, the, it was a makeshift back line. We have to be honest here. Martino brought that up after after the game, where and it was. I don't think he presented it as an excuse, but it was a fact. The back, the center back pairing had never played before together ever. Uh, you know, Dominguez from Cruz Azul is thirty three. I, I thought he was good in the first half at just like being the outlet when they were under pressure in their own half and he was really clean and he would give the ball to Guillermo Ochoa and they would clear the ball or he would show for an easy pass. Like he was doing all the easy things and doing it well. Johan Vasquez, the lefty, the 23-year-old, he has like a quiet personality too. And so in this type of game, like he looked really sort of like polished on the ball in the first half when he had time. and But in the second half, he just, he, he, I think he lost, uh, the, he, he lost the grasp of that matchup that he was sort of in and he, his touch was off. He was struggling to get a play out of his own end. And I think you saw a center back pairing that didn't know each other well. Uh, and, and in the end, that was one of the big differences. That's why we focused on it before the game. Uh, and, and then just quickly, the front three, uh, you know, I think Chucky Lozano is just a top, top player. There's so much to like about him. First of all, I love how he's just really physical for a young, for a, a, a small winger. Uh, and the speed that he has is really impressive. Uh, Tecatito, I thought was, you know, there's concern in Mexico that he's just not in top form. He's not finishing his chances. He's not playing much in Porto and he continues to be relied on. Uh, I thought he was okay. You know, he should have buried that chance. He, he missed, he missed that one. He first. just, he, that, that was, that was such a deflating moment for Mexico. And then Raul Jimenez, who's, who's coming in top form, a Premier League striker coming back from a massive and major head injury, uh, but looking good for Wolves. You know, tonight he, he wasn't sharp enough and, and he was getting the ball similar to Pepe, like in difficult spots. He was on the sideline, pinned to the sideline. Uh, he, he, he fell out of, um, did the flow of the game late in the first half and then sort of turned it on late in the second half when the game was already out of reach. But the, the big players again, just to repeat, Mexico really missed that. They missed those big guys being decisive. Yep. Um, all right. That's enough individual breakdowns. We'll talk a little bit about the group in general here. There's some separation in the octagonal now. The U.S. is, I believe, technically in first, tied with Mexico on 14 points. Uh, but obviously, they have a head-to-head advantage, and they have a better goal difference as well with 11 goals for and four against Mexico with 10 and five. Canada, a very close third after they beat Costa Rica 1-0 up in Edmonton tonight. They are on 13 points. They play Mexico on Tuesday night in Edmonton. Massive match. Panama got a win, a dramatic win. I'm very curious to see the highlights of this game. They were down 2 nothing in San Pedro Sula in Honduras. Paul, I think they were down 2 nothing in the second half. Is that correct? Um, and, and they came back and they won 3-2. to two. <laughs> So they now have 11 points. They're, they're in fourth by 
a comfortable margin ahead of Costa Rica and Jamaica, who are and El Salvador, all three of whom are on six. Um, Jamaica and El Salvador played to a one-one draw in San Salvador tonight. Alex Roldan with a late equalizer for for El Salvador. Um, so Jamaica comes in to Tuesday's match in, in dire need of a win um, at home. I don't know. Did Paul Dino if, if Mikael Antonio and Leon Bailey played for them tonight? I don't know if they played. I, I had seen the reports in Jamaica that Antonio was not going to start, that the idea was to try to save him for uh, for the U.S. game. Yeah, well, he's uh, he's going to not be facing one of the first-choice center backs in Miles Robinson, so that'll be an interesting one if he does indeed start. Um, we'll obviously be talking a lot more about that match in the coming days. Um, guys, just real quick, if, if you want to give me a sentence or two on one of those matches, both of those matches... You know, maybe another match if you want, um, just in terms of what we should be looking for on Tuesday night uh, with, with USA at Jamaica and, and Mexico at Canada. Right, well, first I want to say, Mikhail Antonio did play. He came in and he scored Jamaica's goal in the 82nd minute. Yeah, so there you go. He came in as a substitute. Leon Bailey also started the game for Jamaica. So um, they, they did get their stars on the field, and, and Mikhail Antonio delivered for them um, you know, had what looked like it was going to be the game-winning goal until Alex Roldan had a 90th-minute equalizer for El Salvador. So he left too much time for Alex Roldan. Yeah, that's right. You'd never leave Less too much learned. time for Alex Roldan. <laughs> um, no, if I'm going to break down USA Jamaica, I mean, it, it, for me, that yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how the U.S. responds. And and I wrote this in my story, like the two candidates I think that first come to mind for me to replace Miles Robinson and Weston McKinney. It's not like this team is going to get any older. Chris Richards, 21 years old, all of like four caps. Gianluca Busio, 19 years old, seven caps. Those are the two leading candidates for me to step into the starting lineup. I guess Kellen Acosta might step in for Weston. But like those, you know, this is a good example of some of the options when you're the U.S. Big moment for Chris Richards. I would assume he's the guy who starts for Miles Robinson. And then that becomes a big matchup that you watch. You know, how do Walker Zimmerman and, and Chris Richards handle Mikel Antonio up top? Uh, a, a really informed striker. Um, and, and you know, playing on the road. Chris Richards will be his first time playing on the road in CONCACAF. Um, only in front of 5,000. Only in front of 5,000 fans, which will it'll be a unique experience. Can they match the emotion, certainly not, of this game, going and playing on the road in front of 5,000 fans? Um, so... You know, just the uniqueness of this qualification cycle standing out again. Yeah. Felipe, Mexico and Canada have already played. 1-1 draw at Azteca. They're going up to Edmonton in the cold. Alfonso Davies' hometown. It's going to be a fast track, big crowd. Turf fields. Mexico, you know, they already lost the first game in the window. Pressure's going to be on to get a result. What do you think? Well, first of all, Mexico's trained in Indianapolis this whole week because sort of at, at Indy 11's uh, training facility so that they could train on, on turf. So they were preparing for that game, uh, which is interesting because when I talked to Tata Martino on Wednesday, I believe, and I asked him about, I was like, hey, Tata, I have two questions for you, one about the U.S., one about Canada. Uh, the first question, coincidentally, was about managing the psyche of Mexico's players against the U.S., um, which he said basically that's up to the players to handle. And then he told me, well, you know, we have to watch Canada's transition. They're very quick on this transition, but transition, but we're not there yet. But they were preparing for that. They were training on turf. And so they're ready 
for, for that sort of an environment. I mean, it's it, it becomes a massive game now. I mean, I, I remember telling people that would ask me about the U.S.-Mexico. That's like, you know, basically, especially Mexico, they could lose this game against the U.S., which they have now, and still be, quote unquote, okay. So that's the case. They're still in second place with 14 points, one ahead of Canada. So they can, you know, a, a draw in Canada, one point out of this window is going to get a lot of heat in Mexico, but it's going to be okay mathematically for Mexico, for, for, for the national team. So I think, uh, they should look at this as an opportunity to squash this performance on the road in the U.S. and go and try to beat a team in Canada. Canada's good. Yes. Uh, but they're not an unbeatable team. Uh, there, there's history between Mexico and Canada that favors Mexico. Perhaps Guillermo Ochoa will say something that about Canada wanting to mirror the, you know, uh, the Mexicans as well. I don't know, but <laughs> I think Memo might be done. Talking. Maybe he won't be talking actually. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's what, that's, there's history here. Mexico owns that, that matchup. They own Canada. And yes, the, the talent is, is closer, but this is a game that Mexico should be able to solve. Not necessarily win, uh, but they should come out of the, that game in Edmonton saying, Hey, we're still in the, you know, the top two teams in the Ocho and we're going to be okay. It's going to be interesting because I see a lot of parallels between this Canada team and like 2001 USA, the first Dosacero and that game in Columbus in the cold and kind of a changing of a shifting of the mentality for the American team when they play Mexico. Totally. And I think you, I think you could have some parallels there with Canada. Um, this is a huge, huge game for them too, mentally in those ways. Um, and you know, it's big on points as well because Panama is playing at home against El Salvador on Tuesday. They have 11 points right now. Who knows what'll happen in that game, but they'll be the favorites to win. And if they win, they'll be on 14 points where USA and Mexico are right now. So if USA loses, if Mexico loses, we could be looking at a world on Tuesday night where Canada is in first place with 16 and Panama, USA, and Mexico are in a three-way tie for second with 14. Um, so this, I, I don't know, the possibilities, who knows how it's going to shake out, but this could be shaping into a four-horse race here pretty quickly. Yeah, and I would just say one last thing. Like, wh- This is an opportunity. This is the opportunity for Tata Martino to say, to ask his players and perhaps his staff, but definitely ask his players, like, what, what didn't we do to, 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 to be at the same level of the, of the U.S., you know, on their home turf? Cause they're going to go to Canada and Canada is the type of team, like, they want to punk the, 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 the top teams on counter. They have a lot to prove. They yeah, have a lot to like prove. They are, they love that role. Their man, their, their manager Herdman is like, he he loves this role. I was gonna say he's he, he's he's crazy, but oh, like you know what I mean. Guts. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Like he he relishes this underdog role. He talks about it. He's gonna have these guys like just foaming at the mouth to play Mexico. Can Mexico? Are they gonna be ready for that? Because they weren't ready tonight in in that second half. And so it's a big big moment for these Mexican players. Hundred percent, Paul. You got anything else? No, I agree with Felipe though. Mexico just, I think Mexico needs to embrace again the emotional side of the Mexico team. I think that's always been a big part of who they are and it was missing. It was lacking tonight. It was missing tonight. Well, on that note, I think we'll sign off. Felipe, thanks for joining us, man. This has been a really fun show. I've really enjoyed it. Anytime. Felipe brought the heat. Year of Felipe (laughs) continues.
Um, I'm Sam Stasekel. They're Paul Tenorio and Felipe Cardenas. We're in Cincinnati. It's four in the morning. USA beat Mexico 2-0. Good night. Good night.